through Matthew chapter 11. And uh, today we come to a rather interesting scripture where um, Jesus actually calls John the Baptist Elijah. And that raises all kinds of interesting questions. So, uh, so we're going to take a look at this. But let's first of all talk about Elijah. I love Elijah. He is the Old Testament super prophet. He is bold. He is rugged. And God used him to do some amazing things. Let me remind you of some of the things that Elijah does. There's a famine in the land for three years. So food is scarce. And Elijah uh, runs into a widow. She has a little son. And uh, he says, so what are you doing today? And she says, well, here's my plan. I'm going to go home. I have a, a jar with a little bit of flour in it and a little bit of oil. I'm going to go home, make a cake out of it, feed it to my son and myself, and then I'm going to die. It's almost like a little to-do list. Go home, make a pancake, eat it, die. What are you doing today? You know? And um, Elijah says, well, um, I have a, a suggestion. Why don't you bring me home with you and make the pancake and give it to me? Now you go, that's selfish. Well, he's testing her. He's testing, as a man of God, he's testing to see whether she will trust in the Lord. So she does. She makes the pancake, gives it to Elijah. He eats it. She goes back to the jars of oil and flour, and there, there, there's still flour and oil in there. And this continues day after day after day, and the Lord is miraculously providing for this woman and her son. Now, this goes on for some time. But the boy dies. So then Elijah comes back and visits and, and he sees that she's in tears. What happened? The boy died. He takes the boy in his arms and uh, then raises him from the dead. Resurrects a boy from the dead. Now that's all warm-up stuff, though. The, the big event in Elijah's life is when uh, he challenges the false prophets of Baal. Baal was a false god. There were 450 prophets in Israel um, worshiping and prophesying for Baal, this satanic god. And Elijah says, all right, we're going to have a contest. I'll meet you up on Mount Carmel. Actually, when we went to Israel, uh, we, we were standing there on Mar Mount Carmel where, where Elijah did this. Okay? So he went, up on, he went up on Mount Carmel, and he said, now here's the deal. Since your god, Baal, is the fire god... It should be no problem for you to call on him and bring fire down from heaven. So uh, they built an altar, and they slayed an animal, put the animal up on, on the altar, and he said, all right, you go first. All right? You try to call down fire from heaven from your God, and, and they start slashing themselves with swords, and blood is flowing, and they're calling on Baal, and no fire from heaven. And uh, at this point, Elijah gets bold with all the people of Israel who are watching, because this is the Super Bowl. They're all watching. And he says to them, it says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. All right? Make a choice. Quit wavering. Get off the fence. And then the people responded by doing what? And the people did not answer him a word. Ah, uh, we don't want to do anything. We don't want to have to actually choose to follow the Lord. So then uh, Elijah uh, starts mocking 
the prophets of Baal. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, he's thinking, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going to the bathroom and he's busy, right? Or he's on a journey, maybe he's on vacation, right? Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. <laughs> Your God can't do this, right? So he's mocking them. So then he says, all right, let me give it a try. They put another animal up on the altar. Now there's been a drought for three years, so it's really dry. And he doesn't want them to think that maybe, uh, you know, a stray spark from somebody's cigarette lights this thing on fire. So uh, he says, I want you to douse that thing with water. They douse it with water. He says, do it again. Do it again. No question. That thing is soaking wet. Praise to God. Boom. Fire from heaven falls. And then, this is my favorite part. He says, grab the false prophets of Baal. They grab them and he says, kill them. And they kill the false prophets of Baal. This guy's tough, right? He is super prophet. You know, one of, my, one of the other things that happens is this. Um, there's a, a king up north in Israel, and Elijah prophesies that this king's going to die. The king doesn't want to be told that. So he sends 50 soldiers to go arrest Elijah. And Elijah uh, says, all right, uh, you, you want to come and get me? Come and get me. Bring it on. And he calls on God, and fire falls from heaven, and it kills all 50 soldiers. So the king hears about this. He sends another 50. They surround Elijah. He calls on God. Fire falls from heaven a second time. Third time, the king sends 50 more guys, and the commander falls on his knees, and he says, please don't set me on fire. And uh, Elijah says, all right, I'll spare you, but tell the king he's going to die. And he dies. All right, so he is bold. He's unashamed to speak for the Lord. Right? Now, um, let me give you a little timeline. Elijah lived about 800, in the 800s B.C. Then, um, here we have John the Baptist and Jesus around 30 A.D. But right here, about in the 400s B.C., the last prophet in your Bible, Malachi, writes this. And actually, God is speaking through him. God says, Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So God says, I'm coming, but before I show up, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way, to call people to repentance. Now, the very last words of your, your Old Testament, God says this, Behold... I will send you Elijah. So it's not just a messenger, but I'm going to actually send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. End of book. End of God speaking for 400 years. Then... John the Baptist shows up and he starts calling people to repentance. And today we're going to see that Jesus, in 30 A.D., says that John was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy and he is the Elijah to come. All right, so here's the actual text, Malachi, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus 
is speaking of John. John the Baptist is now in jail. He's been arrested by Herod. This is he, John is he, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So John is the uh, prophesied prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Then he says this about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Up to this point in history, Jesus says, the greatest man who ever lived, not Caesar, not Alexander the Great, not Isaiah the prophet, not Malachi the prophet, but who? John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived up to this point in history. Now, we have to define what does it mean to be great, okay? We'll we'll get to that. But now, here's the shocking thing. John's the greatest man who ever lived, but look at this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, you're in the kingdom of heaven. In some sense... Jesus is saying that even we are greater than John the Baptist. Now, how, what, what does that mean? We're going to explore that this morning. Then verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I'm not even going to touch that this week. We're going to look at it next week because uh, there's, there's some interesting ways to interpret that, and we'll, we'll come back to that next week. But then, verse 13 for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Every, everybody pointed forward and prophesied about this coming Messiah until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said John the Baptist is the predicted messenger that Malachi talked about. John the Baptist is Elijah that Malachi talked about. He is the greatest man who has ever lived up to that point in history. But even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now, let's try to make sense of this. Let me ask some questions that that might help us make sense of this. First of all, was John actually the literal Elijah returned from The dead. Jesus says he is the Elijah. He's Elijah. But we have a little problem because John himself was asked, are you Elijah? In John's gospel, John the Apostle's gospel, uh, John, uh, John reports that John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? John 1, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. So I'm not the awaited Christ. Okay? And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. So how do you reconcile Jesus saying he is Elijah with John saying, no, I'm not Elijah? Well, I think the answer is found uh, at the beginning of Luke's gospel. When John the Baptist is first conceived, his father, who's a priest, uh, prophesies, and an angel talks 
to his father about John uh, the Baptist. Here's what the angel says. And he will go before him, he, John, will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so there's no doubt that we're, we're, that we're talking about the same thing Malachi was talking about, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to, to, to make ready for the Lord a, a people prepared. So was he the literal reincarnation of Elijah? No. Well, in what sense is he Elijah? Well, he is a powerful prophet who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's the sense in which he is the Elijah to come. All right. So was he the literal Elijah, you know, come back from the dead? No, but he is a prophet who comes in the power and boldness of Elijah. He even wore the same clothes. We're told that Elijah wore a, a rough shirt with a leather belt and John the Baptist wore his camel hair shirt with a, with a belt. He even looked like him. Right? Now, next question we want to ask. What's the definition of great? Jesus says that John is the greatest man born of woman up to that point in time. Now, we've got to be careful how we define great. Now, um, it's in the context of prophecy. Jesus says, for all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the prophets, and the law, that's the books before the prophets, the entire Old Testament prophesied until John. What does that mean? Do you know that the theme of the entire Old Testament is Jesus? Right? The coming Messiah. Jesus, he's coming. There were bits and pieces and glimpses of who this Messiah would be, but it all was a big arrow pointing to Jesus. Right? So uh, the definition of greatness is this. The one who most clearly points to Jesus is the greatest. Do you get that? In, in the context of prophecy, prophecy is pointing to Jesus. John is the greatest in the sense that he pointed to Jesus in a clearer way, in a more powerful way than all of the Old Testament prophets. Right? Greatness is not defined by how much you point to yourself and build yourself up and gain a following for yourself, greatness defi is defined by how you point to Jesus. Right? Remember, um, John not only predicted the coming of Jesus, he actually identified him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that's him. Then he baptized him. Then he told his followers, go follow him. You could say this, John pointed the way and then he got out of the way. That's greatness. Right? He pointed the way to, to Jesus and then he got out of the way. In fact, John's own followers got a little nervous that, uh, that people were, were, were leaving John and going to follow Jesus. Here in John 3 it says, they, his followers, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom, 
to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You're losing the church growth war. Right? You had this huge following, and now they're, they're following after Jesus. They must be using all those, uh, those church growth techniques. What are we going to do? We've got to get them back. We've got to get our market share back. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I, I don't have one follower unless it was God. Who, who sent him my way. Right? It's, not up, it's not up to how clever I am, John says. Anybody who's followed me, it's because God has, has moved them in my direction. Then he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride is the church, okay? The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I'm the best man. Jesus is the groom. Yeah, I called the people to me, but now I'm handing the bride over to him. And rather than being sad about that, I'm happy. I know my place. My place is not to create a a following for myself. My place is to point them to Jesus. And don't you panic about people going to follow Jesus. I am thrilled. And then he says this. He must increase, but I must decrease. I've, I've done my job. I've called people to repentance. And then I pointed them to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's what greatness is. Greatness is not calling people to follow you, but pointing to Jesus. Right now, we need to define one more thing before we put this all together. What does it mean that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist? Let's define what the kingdom of heaven is. Who are those in the kingdom of heaven? Now, that term, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, is an interesting phrase. It's kind of a flexible word, and I, I try to teach my students this, that words, words in the Bible um, are not wooden, literal um, um, things that, that mean the same in every context. You look up a word in, in the English dictionary, cold can mean different things in different contexts. It's cold outside. I have a, a cold. Boy, he sure seemed cold. All right. The context makes the word uh, take on a different meaning. Now, the phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it can expand and shrink according to the context. Now, because God is sovereign. Now, the, the basic definition of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is this. The reign of God. The, the rule of God. Now, there's a sense in which, because God is sovereign over everything, that everything in all of creation is part of the kingdom of God. That's the sovereign kingdom of God. There are other contexts, though, in which the kingdom of God includes those whose hearts have surrendered to the sovereignty of God, to the rule of God. That's why, why uh, Jesus says, to Nicodemus, truly, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God is everything, and then the kingdom of God would be those whose hearts have been uh, surrendered to the king. Right? Now, that would include the large, larger... There's a large definition of the sovereignty of God, then there's the definition of believers. That would include believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right? Everybody whose heart has been surrendered to the Lord is in the kingdom of God. But now, in... Our passage today, Jesus uses the term kingdom of heaven in an even more restricted sense. Right? In our passage today, Jesus is using the term to refer to New Testament believers. He is saying a new era has come. And the new era has come because up to this point, the prophets pointed to the kingdom and the king. But now I, the king, have arrived. It's a new era. And a new covenant is being made with this new people of the new era. We just celebrated the sign of the new covenant, communion. Okay? And even the least person in this new era is greater than the greatest person in the Old Covenant, John the Baptist, in what sense? We, in the New Covenant, we on this side of the cross can point to Jesus in a much greater way, in a much clearer way than anybody in the Old Testament could. That's how we are greater. Don't get a big ego about this. (laughs) You just happen to be born on this side of the cross. Now, how is it, though, that we can point to Jesus in a greater way than even John the Baptist? Let me give you two ways. Two ways we're greater than John the Baptist. Two ways in which we can point to Jesus in an even greater way. One, we have the fullness of the Scriptures. And two, we have the fullness of the Spirit. Okay, we have the fullness of the Scriptures and we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. All right? First of all, the fullness of the Scriptures. You know, the, the Old Testament saints and the prophets, they had fragments and glimpses of a Messiah who would come. But it was hard to piece it all together and make sense of that big picture. That explains why even John the Baptist, he's in prison now, And he has to send his disciples to Jesus. And he goes, are you the guy? Or should we expect somebody else? Why? Because he couldn't piece it all together. He was expecting a, a, a cosmic change in the universe. And Jesus, yeah, he raised people from the dead. He healed people. He did miracles. But... It wasn't the cosmic change, the great day of the Lord that he was expecting. Why? Because he didn't have the full picture yet. Okay? Even uh, here in Malachi, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So John's thinking, okay, I'm the Elijah. I've prepared the way, but I'm still in jail. And yeah, Jesus did some miracles, but not like Isaiah talked about. You know, 
lion will lie down with the lamb and righteousness will shine and uh, the glory of the Lord will be all over the world. It, it, this doesn't seem to make sense. So he, he couldn't piece it all together. Now, we have the fullness of the scriptures. On this side of the cross, we have the New Testament. We understand that the Messiah comes twice. The second time he comes, and we're waiting for him to return, he does bring in that cosmic change. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There will be the great white throne judgment. There will be heaven and hell. Uh, He will cosmically change all of reality. But the first time he came, the Messiah came to humbly die on the cross to pay for our sins and then to gather a people for himself. It's taken over 2,000 years. We're still gathering. We're still gathering. But we have the full picture. We can explain the gospel to, to people on this side of the cross in a much fuller way than they could on the other side of the cross. You know, even the apostles didn't fully get it. Remember, uh, Jesus once mentions to them, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going uh, to beat me and crucify me. And Peter says, no, 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 don't talk about that, don't talk like that. Positive mental attitude, Jesus. And Jesus has to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right? Peter didn't get it. And then Jesus is arrested in the garden. What does Peter do? He pulls out his sword, he starts slashing, chops off the ear of the guy. Why? Because you're not going to touch... This is our Messiah. He's got to bring in this new era. And then Jesus put the sword away. You don't get it, Peter. So they were still confused. But now we have the fullness of the scriptures. But now we also have something else. We have the fullness of the Spirit. Now, theologians kind of argue over this. Did they have the, old, did they have the Spirit in the Old Testament? Well... They had to have the Spirit to some degree, or you wouldn't believe. You need to be regenerated in your heart to be a believer. So there was a degree to which even Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit. Some, some referred to it as a smaller dose. Some referred to it as the Holy Spirit was on the outside, but now he's on the inside. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly how to refer to that, but Jesus tells the disciples, wait When I ascend into heaven, you wait here in Jerusalem, and I will give you a fuller dose of the Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them with even greater power than they already had. All right? Now... um, On this side of the cross, we have a fuller experience of power than even Elijah and John the Baptist had. Or I should say we have access to greater power than even John the Baptist and Elijah had. Now, right away, some people start getting excited. They go, oh, yeah, I want to do me some miracles. Right? I'm going to call down fire from heaven on my neighbor. Right? I'm going to raise people from the dead. This will be fun. Because I'm going to be greater 
than Elijah and John the Baptist. Slow down. <laughs> Slow down. Remember, remember John and uh, James, they, they were walking with Jesus through Samaria, and the Samaritans didn't receive them very well. So they said, Jesus, can we, can we call down fire on them and, and nuke them in the name of the Lord? Right? And he rebukes them for their attitude. Okay? Don't automatically assume that this fuller experience with the Spirit, don't automatically assume that it has anything to do with miracles. Do you know that John the Baptist never did one miracle? In fact, in uh, John 10.41, it is clearly spelled out that John never performed a miracle. Yet, Jesus calls him great. So I would not say that being able to perform miracles is the sign of greatness or the, fuller, uh, the fullness of the Spirit. You wouldn't know that from some Christians. Boy, they, they, they seek after miracles like, oh, boy, that is the thing. That is the sign that I have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you look for the fruit of the Spirit in some of their lives. You don't see that. But they want to show off that they have the power of the Spirit by the miracles that they can do. Now, I'm not down on miracles. If God wants to do a miracle, he can do a miracle. All right? What then is this power? What is this greater experience with the Spirit? Let's read this verse again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my, ah, witnesses. I believe that the definition of power, of greater power, is that you will be given power to witness with boldness in an even greater degree than John the Baptist or Elijah. Do you believe that? Now, I know why some of you are kind of going, I don't know. Because you know one another, right? <laughs> you know. You go, well, wait a minute. If this promise of power to be a bold witness is what this is talking about, how come so many of us are so timid? How come American Christians aren't more bold in their stand for Jesus. Well, let me give you a couple of possibilities. One, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is truly a Christian. Right? There's a lot of deceived people in church pews who think they're saved. But if there's no desire to spread the gospel, guess what? You're deceived. Jesus said, whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. So one explanation is millions have bought into a false gospel and they're following a false Jesus and they have a false Holy Spirit that doesn't work in the real world. Okay, So that's one possibility. Possibility number two, it's possible to be truly saved and to truly have the Holy Spirit, but to suppress the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's possible to, uh, uh, to put a cap on the power of of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not even going to get into the whole controversy of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are some 
some people who interpret the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace that you need to seek after. And then you get your power dose. So you get saved. That's step one. Step two is seek after a second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, the reason I'm not even going to get into an argument, now the, the other side says no, um, what happened in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost and in Acts chapter 10 on the, the Samaritan Pentecost and then in Acts chapter 10, or excuse me, Acts 8 is Samaria, Samaria, Acts 10 is Cornelius. They all speak in tongues and they have a filling of the Holy Spirit, but those were unique uh, movements of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, there are many Pentecosts, but the normative thing that we have today is a filling of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of the Holy Spirit the moment you believe. Now, we can argue back and forth, when do you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the moment you believe or, or later on, okay? But I'm going to bypass that whole argument by pointing to this verse, Ephesians 5.18, which says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Present tense, be filled, that's continual action. That's Don't just seek a filling once. See, the problem with the the view that says you need to seek after the baptism of the Holy Spirit a second time, I would say you need to seek after the filling of the Holy Spirit More than a second time, every day of your life you need to seek after a filling of the Holy Spirit. Why settle with a second time experience? What do you do once you have that? You quit? This is a a command to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, um, what, what is the reasoning behind Paul telling us we need to be filled, well, obviously we must be able to shrink that Holy Spirit and suppress the Holy Spirit. What do we do that suppresses the Holy Spirit? Sin. Not only sin, but harbor sin. Live in sin. Okay? And it's interesting, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4... Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you have been sealed. And then he goes on to say, don't harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. The particular sin that seems to grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit and shrink the Holy Spirit the most is bitterness and unforgiveness toward others. I would say that if you're not feeling the filling of the Spirit and the freedom of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit and you're not bold in your witness, is there a possibility that you're a bitter person? You're full of of, uh, anger. Maybe you're harboring some bitterness that goes all the way back to your third grade teacher or what your parents did to you or what your first husband or wife did to you or your second husband or your third husband or your fourth husband or wife and you're just filled with with bitterness. 
there's a correspondence between handing that over to the Lord and forgiving and letting go of bitterness and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I went to a funeral last month. Roy Tosh. Um, How old was Roy? Pushing 80. 82. Uh, I was going to show you a picture. Sweetest, kindest guy. You look into his big baby blue eyes and um, everybody loved Roy. Boldest witness for Christ I've ever seen. He would not go out to eat without witnessing to uh, everybody in the restaurant, especially the waitress. Poor waitress, boy. He would just you know, explain the gospel to everybody. But they liked him. They would listen to him. He took me to Haiti. He built a camp in Haiti. And he took me to Haiti twice. And um, I remember going door to door, hut to hut, with Roy, trying to lead them to the Lord. Okay. Now, he's a bold witness for Jesus, a kind man. You know what I learned at the funeral? I learned two things about this guy. One, he has four children. One of them was murdered. He went to the jail cell of the man who murdered his own son and forgave him and explained the gospel to him. Another thing I learned was he had a business. He cut down trees up in the north woods of Wisconsin and put wood everywhere. I don't know what he did. He was like a carpenter or something. Somebody ripped him off for $500,000. That's a lot of money. Buy a lot of gas with that. Somebody said, how can you just forgive the person? He goes, it's not my money, it's the Lord's money. This guy forgave a lot. And he was filled with the Spirit. And he was a bold, kind witness for Christ. Now, I'm going to call you to do something here that may be the hardest thing you've ever done. Forgive. I'm going to call you to to let go. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's somebody currently in your life. Maybe it's somebody who hurt you really, really badly. But what do you want more? To be in control and to feel uh, like like you're going to get revenge? Or would you rather have the sweetness of the fullness of the Spirit controlling you? Now here's the bigger question. Can you trust Him? Can you trust God to handle that person who harmed you better than you can? See, think how crazy that is. I'm going to hold on to my anger and my bitterness all my life. What's it doing? It's destroying you. It's destroying your family. It's, it's destroying your walk. It's destroying your, your fullness of the Holy Spirit. Satan is laughing. And you're really not getting, you're not getting revenge. In Romans, Paul says, don't return evil for evil, but leave room for the Lord's vengeance. 
In other words, he's much better at bringing about justice than you are. Can you hand it over to him? Forgive that person or those people or that whole slew of people. Ask God to fill you and be a bold witness for him. All right, let's pray. Worship team, come on up.